Why would Canada's most prominent left-wing political party promote U.S.-led efforts to overthrow governments in Ukraine, Venezuela, and elsewhere? Why is the Canadian Labour Congress oriented behind a charity as opposed to a solidarity model for foreign policy? Why did Canadian unions become staunch cold warriors after the Second World War? Why do prominent left commentators in the Canadian media concede the myth of Canadian benevolence on the world stage? How can authentic anti-war and solidarity activists counter the propaganda enabling empire in the guise of a progressive foreign policy? On this week's Global Research News Hour, we host a conversation with one of Canada's most prominent dissident foreign policy analysts, Eve Engler, as he prepares to embark on a cross-Canada tour of his latest book. On this week's program, The Canadian Left as Agent of War and Empire, a conversation with Eve Engler. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of October 5th, 2018. I'm series host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabe Gakin, the homeland of the Métis Nation and the traditional territory of Nahiawak and the Nakota. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Very few Americans know who Sheldon Adelson is, and fewer still appreciate that as America's leading political donor, when he speaks, the Republican Party listens. By virtue of his largesse, he has been able to direct GOP policy in the Middle East in favor of Israel, which might well be regarded as his true home, while the United States exists more as a faithful friend that can be produced at intervals whenever Israel finds itself in need of a bit of cash or political cover. Adelson's recent successes in translating his political donations into policy favorable to Israel have included shifting the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem, cutting aid to Palestinians, ending the Iranian nuclear monitoring agreement, and closing the Palestine Liberation Organization's diplomatic office in Washington. All those Trump administration measures were reportedly worked out privately by Adelson speaking directly with the president. Adelson's activities in buying politicians reflect what he believes. He reportedly having said that, quote, there's no such thing as a Palestinian. That comes from the article, Best Government Money Can Buy, by Philip Giraldi, posted October 4th, originally appearing at Strategic Culture Foundation. The anthrax attack was exploited in standard problem-reaction-solution fashion. After the attack and media hyperactivity, the U.S. once again began throwing money into biological warfare research. The government gave the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases $1.5 billion in 2003, and Congress passed Project BioShield Act, which provided $5.6 billion over 10 years for the purchase of new vaccines and drugs, thus providing transnational pharmaceutical corporations a welcome influx of taxpayer money. 
how long before a revitalized cadre of neocons folded within the Trump administration blamed this attack on Iran or Russia? The UK set the example when it blamed Russia for the Skripal Novichok poisonings, a transparent and completely baseless accusation that was embraced by the US and its parroting corporate media. That comes from the article, Anthrax False Flag Redux, by Kurt Nimmo, posted October 3rd, originally appearing at the author's blog site, Another Day in the Empire. Near war's end at 36 years of age, Skorzeny was at the peak of his global prestige and physical powers, known as the most dangerous man in Europe, resulting in America's supreme commander, Dwight D. Eisenhower, having his personal security presence significantly bolstered in Western Europe. Scorzini cut a formidable figure at six feet four inches tall with peaked cap, binoculars, and iron cross, while draped in Waffen-SS tunic and a winter overcoat. The scar on his left cheekbone running down to the chin, inflicted in 1928 during a dueling bout, betrayed itself when approaching close to him. Having been involved from the June 1941 launch of Operation Barbarossa with the SS division Das Reich, Skorzeny was long acquainted with his Russian adversaries, whom he called, quote, brave, tough, and with an outstanding sense of camouflage, they put up astonishingly bitter resistance, unquote. He dedicated his extensive 1975 memoirs to, quote, the true heroes of the Second World War, the common Russian and German soldier, unquote. That comes from the article, History of World War II, Hitler's Favorite Commando and Committed Nazi, Otto Skorzeny, by Shane Quinn, posted October 3rd. The reality is that Moscow signed the non-aggression pact with the Germans because its leadership believed that the only way to preserve the security of the USSR after its quest for collective security with London and Paris had failed and to buy time for an inevitable conflict with Germany, though Stalin was not convinced of this inevitability, was to sign an agreement with Berlin. Hitler agreed to the pact with the Soviet Union so that this would give him a free hand to fight France and Britain without the fear of the Soviets attacking him from the rear. In short, the Nazi-Soviet pact was not a pact of friendship, but a pact of convenience. On the 80th anniversary of the Munich Agreement, Britain and France have a moral responsibility to apologize to the people of the former Czechoslovakia for disregarding their country's sovereignty and territorial integrity and to recognize the enormous ramifications for Europe and its people of the shame and tragedy, tragedy that was Munich. And it is high time that British and French politicians and journalists alike learn about the Soviet Union's search for collective security with London and Paris to deter Hitler from aggression because, had the Russians been successful, it is just possible that the most devastating war in history could have been averted. That comes from the article, 80 Years On, The Shame and Tragedy of the 1938 Munich Agreement, by Marcus Papadopoulos, posted October 3rd, originally appearing at Morning Star. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. 
CKUW 95.9 FM, the station which hosts Global Research News Hour, is celebrating Pass the Mic Week, an annual event in which programmers are encouraged to allow community members without regular access to the airwaves to take over hosting for all or part of a program. In keeping with this tradition, the Global Research News Hour is passing the reins to Winnipeg based community videographer, citizen journalist, anti war activist, and associate, Paul Graham. Here he is with an exclusive interview with Eve Engler. Eve Engler is a Montreal based activist and author. He has published 10 books, most of which deal with one or another aspect of Canadian foreign policy. Eve is on a national tour this October to promote his most recent book entitled Left Right Marching to the Beat of Imperial Canada. Left Right details and analyzes the various ways in which the Canadian left, which has challenged powerful corporate interests domestically, tends to reinforce, or at best, be silent when it comes to imperialist foreign policy. In this interview, Eve provides more details about how and why the Canadian left, including the labor unions, Canada's most prominent left-wing political party, the New Democratic Party, and outspoken commentators such as Michael Byers and Stephen Lewis, have aligned with corporate interests abroad. Perhaps before we start looking at the specific players that are addressed in the book, you could uh, give me a definition of uh, what you deem to be uh, good, solid foreign policy. What, what, what should we be doing that we're not doing? I mean, that, that's also a somewhat uh, a complicated uh, um, question in the sense that I, I think that foreign policy decisions are uh, issue specific. Um, there's some general principles, um, and I do provide some general principles in the book. Um, uh, one being uh, uh, the uh, you know do unto others ha- as you would have d- done unto yourself um, principle, which is a pretty basic uh, uh, idea of uh, you know if you wouldn't want that to happen to you, uh, don't do it elsewhere. So if you don't like the idea of a, a foreign country dropping bombs uh, on your country, then maybe that's best not to do uh, elsewhere. Um, but that's a, obviously a very general principle that that doesn't necessarily tell us that much about uh, certain day-to-day uh, sort of decisions. Um, also, I provide the 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 uh, the first do no harm. Uh, idea. Um, we our political culture is very much driven by this idea that Canada should be doing more in the world, and uh, you know really sort of spans the political spectrum of of uh, of uh, let's intervene. Let's either intervene through uh, at the you know hard uh, militarist end. Let's intervene through uh, more Canadian NATO missions um, at the at the uh, more sort of liberal end. It's let's intervene with more um, Canadian aid or let's intervene with more Canadian responsibility to protect. Uh, um, and uh and too often, it, lost in that mix is is the is the I, I think should be a, a, part, a principle of Canadian foreign policy, which is let's make sure first off let's not do, do any harm as as you know medical doctors are supposed to supposed to uh, uh, operate by, um, and uh, and so and I think that's also that that uh, principle is is grounded in uh, in international law. Um, but when you get into the specifics, I mean, there's, 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 you really have to look at every different uh, uh, case. So, for instance, right now with Venezuela, you have a Canadian government that's 
pushing to intervene, uh, has sanctioned uh, uh, the Venezuelan government in three different series of sanctions, um, which, uh, of course, contravene international law, um, is uh, working to support opposition groups, um, has pushed to bring Venezuela to the International Criminal Court. Um, well, uh, uh, you know, in this case, Canada should just stop doing it's it's interventionist meddling policies that would be a good uh, uh, foreign policy and from the standpoint of a, of a left political party or a labor union or just a left-wing commentator um, what they should be saying is Canada should stop with this uh, support of a, of a, a US-led effort to topple a, an elected government of Venezuela which has you know many problems but at the end of the day it's an elected government uh, it's up to Venezuelans to decide um, uh, how to go about uh, uh, you know changing government or, or, or improving their situation um, so you, you there isn't a, you know there isn't just sort of one principle of, of, of Canadian foreign policy or foreign policy for any country for that matter um, it's it's very much issue specific um, uh, but there are some sort of general principles that I that I outline a bit in the book right and you also cover quite a number of specific issues in the book and and maybe we can use some of those to talk about the uh, the role of the uh, the NDP and and prior to that the CCF uh, it it's it's remarkable that uh, if you uh, consider you just rattle off half a dozen country names the uh, the NDP CCF has uh, come down on the wrong side uh, consistently uh, with regard to Iran Iraq Haiti Afghanistan Libya Ukraine former Yugoslavia Syria Venezuela uh, what have I missed uh, Korea I believe uh... <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs> how how did this get started. Um, well, first thing I would say that the CCF, going back to the uh, the Regina Manifesto, sort of laying the basis for the party, um, already you can see that that foreign policy issues are downgraded in in uh, in the in their uh, proposals. Um, they do put forward uh, um, uh, anti-war and even uh, some anti-imperialist. Uh, kind of language, um, certainly after World War One, which was a, just a total disaster um, by uh, by any sort of humanist uh, uh, perspective. There was a lot of uh, of, of anti-war feeling uh, uh, about, uh, and that's reflected in the CCF early on. But early on, you see that there there is no or is very limited um, challenging of of. Canadian, uh, um, you know, power in the Caribbean, for instance, the Canadian banks, which dominated the Caribbean at that time while it was under British colonial rule, you don't see that being brought up by the CCF in the 1930s. Um, uh, you know, Spain was a good, was an example where the CCF was on the right side in terms of uh, uh, opposing the, you know, Franco's uh, fascists. Um, but you, 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 there is, there's already, um, a sort of nationalistic, uh, uh, kind of component to CCF, um, early, uh, thinking, which, which again, like I said, sort of downgrades or, or ignores Canada's, uh, corporate Canada's power in the hemisphere, particularly in the Caribbean, also, you know, Canadian, Canadian, uh, connections with British colonial rule all across the African continent, which were, which were not insignificant. Um, but, but it is true that it's really after World War II, 
the CCF just completely adopts uh, uh, the Cold War thinking, uh, backs the creation of NATO in 1949, supports the Korean War of 1950, and actually not just supports it, they initially support right away, they support Canada sending uh, uh, gunboats to Korea, but then they prod uh, the, the government to send ground troops before that decision had been made. Um, uh, so this is a war that ends up leaving millions dead. Um, uh, they, you know, they, uh, at a point within the war, they do turn against the war because it becomes clear what what this is all about, which is about American power and vis-a-vis uh, -vis China and, and, and Asia. And that, that uh, so they do turn against the war uh, uh, part of the way through. But but for the for the two decades after um, uh, the, the World War Two, the CCF very much aligns with official Canadian slash US slash British uh, foreign policy. Um, and uh, uh, and they're aggressive, aggressive proponents of imperialism. And and um, and so as the political party has actually uh, They've turned gone to the right with their domestic policies. Now, you know, back in the day, CCF would talk about capitalism, would talk about uh, social ownership. Today, of course, the NDP uh, very rarely uh, uh, talks about those things. Um, uh, you see, the NDP today on on foreign policy issues is really it has become. Uh, um, very limited in their criticism of of uh, of, uh, of uh, official Canadian policy. Strong proponents of Canadian militarism. Strong proponents of of increasing the Canadian military budget. So, for instance, in in June of last year, when when uh, the Liberal government announced the seventy percent increase in military spending over ten years, the N the NDP foreign critic Randall Garrison criticized the Trudeau government for not putting more of that money up up front right away, um, uh, supporting, you know, the, the bombing of Libya in 2011, the, the NDP voted for two different UN or voted for two different House of Commons resolutions supporting the bombing of Libya in 2011. Um, so they have they have become uh, uh, staunchly uh, supportive of uh, of uh, of Canadian uh, uh, militarism, and um, and uh, I, I would say that it's 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 uh, in many ways worse today than at the founding of the CCF. Uh, but if you look back at the history, uh, even at the founding, when when it was a much more of a, of a, a socialistic uh, minded uh, political movement, um, you still see some some uh, some blank spots, if you like, on on foreign policy uh, questions. Well, two things jumped out at me when I was reading your account of, of the NDP and the CCF through the years. Um, that you alluded to, uh, one of them was there's on some things anyway. There seemed to be uh, uh, a division between the leadership of the party and uh, um, the rank and file, or at least you know important parts of the rank and file uh, over foreign policy questions. And I guess the other thing that struck me is the profound uh, impact of the the Cold War, anti-communism, and so on. Do you want to amplify on any of that? Yeah, I, I think the division question between the leadership and the membership is a very important question. Uh, there's many facets to that. Um, one, you go right back to, you know, 
the the uh, CCF um, supporting the Korean War, that was done in a way um, just before the convention taking place up in Vancouver in 1950, and it was done explicitly. The the Executive Council came out before the convention, just before the convention, and stated very strongly, "We support the war, and we we want ground troops." Um, and there were there was anger among members who wanted to actually debate the issue. Uh, same thing with uh, with well, with NATO is more complicated in that in that there was constant debates at conventions over NATO with the leadership uh, consistently backing NATO and and the membership um, bringing that up bringing that up at convention after convention uh, and finally not till the, you know, in the late 1960s they they're able to um, to to uh, to actually get uh, a sort of partial victory on the question of of um, of uh, calling for Canada to pull out of NATO, um, uh, that that's a, that's a you know a battle you see that goes on till today, right? You at the recent most recent convention on the question of Palestine, there was a huge groundswell behind this uh, fairly moderate Palestine resolution. Uh, more than twenty five riding associations that backed it. The the youth convention uh, unanimously backed it. Many different NDP affiliated groups backing this resolution and the leadership. Uh, uh, blocked it from even being uh, discussed by the convention. They they pulled all kinds of uh, of uh, shenanigans to make it so that the, the this resolution that was the most widely supported foreign policy resolution couldn't even be discussed at the convention. And that's this kind of um, perspective that has been, I think, uh, the overwhelming dominant perspective within the party leadership, which is basically to keep the activist uh, opinion on foreign policy issues uh, uh, marginalized. The, just, just the, just the ma- mere matter of debating these issues is viewed as sort of embarrassing uh, to the party leadership when it comes to the dominant media. And so they do what they can to try to just, just make it um, difficult to even have uh, discussions of these issues. Um, so that's a very important uh, uh, a part of uh, the whole question of, of, of NDP, CCF, foreign policy. And, and I sort of element of that is also the fact that this is not, you know, there is lots of ignorance within the, you know, membership of the party on different foreign policy questions. There's no doubt that the lack of knowledge about, you know, what's going on in Venezuela today, for instance, is, is, a, is a problem um, uh, within the party. But at the, at the upper echelons, of the party, it's, the problem is not just uh, just ignorance. I mean, they 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 actively try to suppress uh, discussion and debate uh, on these issues. And and there's a whole history that I detail in the book of of these efforts of trying to um, um, sort of suppress debate, uh, which which like I said, it's it's um, it shows that the 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 leadership is uh, you know has has made their made their decision uh, uh, not based upon not knowing stuff, but based upon certain political calculations. Um, and I think those political calculations are, are heavily driven by, you know, uh, what's considered acceptable by the by the dominant media. Maybe we could turn and and talk about the labor movement uh, more generally. In in some respects, I would imagine the the labor movement and the NDP uh, involve many of the same people, but not all. And uh, uh, labor's approach to foreign policy in in the book, you talk about some positive things and some you know quite negative things. Um, Maybe we could start off by talking about the CLC's, what you call a charity orientation to international affairs. 
Yeah, I mean, the, the Canadian Labour Congress, uh, first of all, most of their funding for international affairs projects has come from uh, the Canadian International Development Agency, which is now collapsed into Global Affairs Canada. Uh, so it's come from the, the official Canadian, you know, Canadian states foreign policy uh um, and so that obviously uh, constrains what you can do um, with that money. Um, and, uh, and the Harper government actually cut back their funding, which basically collapsed um, the, the CLC's, uh, much of the CLC's foreign policy uh, division. Um, at, within the affiliates of the Canadian Labour Congress, um, Steelworkers, Unifor, uh, they have uh, humanities funds, uh, which is set up a couple decades, began being set up a couple decades ago. And these funds often, it, it, the, each employee uh, and each employer will put, you know, a penny or two an hour of work uh, uh, into these funds. Um, and, uh, you know, in principle, it's, a, it's a, I think a, it's a really good idea. It's a, it's a you know, the, you have to bargain these into contracts. The unions bargain them into contracts. Uh, forcing the employer to pay a bit and, and also members to to pay a bit, um, but how they've mostly been modeled is as uh, uh, as just as charity. I mean, and uh, and international charity, you know, it's sort of tied into the to the NGO world um, and international charity. They generally have. Um, uh, tax deductible uh, status, uh, which brings with it constraints on your political activity, um, and uh, and I, I haven't I haven't done like a, an analysis of every different uh, project that all the different humanities funds have pursued uh, abroad, but I did look at the Unifor uh, humanities funds, um, and uh, of the projects listed on their website, um, there was only one that sort of in any way dealt with Canada. There was a, there was a project um, uh, that uh, they pursuing with um, with uh, um, oil workers in uh, in Colombia, and it was a Canadian uh, listed uh, uh, oil company that the the workers were were in were in battle with. So there was sort of an indirect uh, element of Canadian uh, policy, um, but other projects. One on specifically on, on in Haiti, um, which was uh, supporting um, victims of the earthquake uh, who had been made handicapped. Earthquake of 20, 2010 in Haiti, um, who had been been um, been injured, um, and there's nothing about any of the political context. So, for instance, Canada helped overthrow an elected government in Haiti in 2004. Uh, Canada is a huge uh, political player in Haiti. All that's just ignored in the in the Unifor pr uh, project, and it's just you know let's help these children who were victim of the earthquake, which are you know in the in the narrow no doubt helpful. I mean, people who are injured uh, uh, would generally appreciate uh, some form of help. Um, but if you if you look, uh, you know, the case of Haiti is one that's it's abundantly clear. Um, this is the you know NGO capital of the world. There's all these different international uh, charity organizations that are all supposedly helping Haiti, and Haiti is a is a is a disaster where you know they don't have a public school system. They have foreign NGOs running schools. Uh, they don't barely have a health system. Same thing. It's, it, you know, foreigners running that. That's not um, what unions would call for in Canada. 
right? What we call for in Canada would be a public school system, a public healthcare system that that is responsive to the to the democratic demands of the population. But then when it comes to, you know, a place like Haiti or elsewhere, um, we were willing to, you know, uh, engage in or support a different type of model, which which leaves most Haitians um, uh, fairly powerless in uh, in, um, in, uh, in in demanding, you know, better better health services education services etc so 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 the model that that unions have pursued ironically is not with regards to these humanities funds is is generally not the type of model uh, of of what of political uh, developments that we we the unions generally pursue in Canada for the most part in Canada unions view um, uh, political struggle and demands on government as the best way to overcome uh, social ills. Uh, when it comes to uh, their foreign, uh, uh, or at least their humanities funds, for the most part, they get into this model of, of, of charities. And if you look into it, you, you'll find that the Canadian Labour Congress is is very much connected in with uh, the Canadian Council for International Cooperation, which is the main NGO umbrella group in Ottawa, which was set up in the late '60s with with funding from the Canadian International Development Agency. Um, and it's it's you know it's again it's the model of charity as the way to deal with uh, with problems rather than the model of 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 political engagement. Of, of international solidarity, and I would I would argue that a a union that was is is committed to um, uh, to internationalism needs to be challenging Canadian foreign policy. That's that it's, it's that's the most important thing that we can do sitting here in in Canada to to uh, to uh, alleviate the inequalities in this world is by is by prodding our government. Our corporations that are contributing to these inequalities to, you know, to stop uh, uh, doing that, and the union's uh, uh, charity model of, of, of international engagement doesn't uh, doesn't deal with that. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. There's a there's a long history, uh, isn't there, of uh, of the unions largely being the creature of American foreign policy through uh, uh, manipulation of labor uh, uh, internationals and and so on and so forth. Can you provide a little a little context there? Yeah, um, there's there's. Uh, um, uh, Battles between, I mean, the, the, the you know the CIA um, uh, played a role in the creation of the uh, ICFTU um, to undermine uh, um, um, what were, what they claimed to be uh, to be uh, uh, Soviet-backed uh, 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 labor federation um, that united much of Western Europe. Um, and Canadian unions, uh, the predecessors to the, the CLC, uh, uh, played a small part uh, in that process, and and uh, and Canadian uh, uh, unions, um, uh, you know, supported things like the Marshall Plan, uh, and the Marshall Plan in the, of post World War II Marshall Plan. Part of the objective of the Marshall Plan, uh, from American planners' perspective, was to break off 
um, Italian and uh, and uh, French unions um, from their their support uh, for uh, uh, the uh, uh, the world. I'm forgetting the name. Uh, the World uh, uh, Trade Union Federation that the, that the CIA claimed was was um, was Soviet backed. Um, uh, so 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 you know Canadian unions participated in that, and and Canadian unions early Canadian union leaders were very close uh, uh, to um, to external affairs, um, uh, to you know official Canadian foreign policy, and they ended up with all kinds of positions as you know uh, uh, labor attaché at the U.S. embassy in Washington. Uh, uh, they they ended up with different positions within the Canadian foreign policy. Um, uh, establishment or came foreign policy realm, um, and uh, and and this so they 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 went alongside these efforts and the American efforts are, are very well detailed where you know the CIA spent huge amounts of money in uh, in Italy um, the one I looked into the most of uh, of supporting um, uh, the, you know the weakening of the communist dominated uh, 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 unions at the time, and uh, and that was a really important objective of American foreign policy after World War II, and of course the Americans' um, um, uh, in, intervention in, in Italian election, um, uh, where the communists probably would have won if it wasn't for major American intervention in in, uh, in 1947. Um, and so, and Canadian unions generally went along with that, and just as they went along with um, some of the uh, the British colonial uh, uh, labor policy in, in Africa in, during the colonial period in the nineteen fifties, where Canadian union officials would go on these uh, uh, these international uh, union missions, where they would echo uh, um, uh, uh, British po- British policy and about the you know Mau Mau revolt in Kenya, for instance, where the the British brutally brutally rep- repressed the anti-colonial struggle there, and Canadian labor officials would uh, would participate in these in these uh, initiatives and, and basically echo what what uh, British officials were saying. Um, so the, the Canadian unions in the two decades after World War II they were staunch uh, Cold War Cold Warriors even more so than the than the CCF. Um, that changed by you know the late '60s through the '70s, uh, and it changed, I think, in large part because of the the, the anti-war movements, anti-Vietnam War movement, um, and then with the the uh, South Africa solidarity movements and Central America solidarity movements, broke uh, very much broke the unions away from being these these uh, uh, sort of in, basically imperialist hawks. Um, uh, but, but I would say today the labor unions for the most part, their foreign policy is, is not unlike the, the NDP, which is, is aligned, um, often quite explicitly, sometimes not, but often quite explicitly with, with Canadian imperialism, um, labor unions, that's not the case. It's rarely the case today. For the most part, unions have just the, they just, they stay silent, on, on important foreign policy uh, issues, um, and of course, you know, silence when when uh, you have um, 
policies being pursued, um, you can't, you know, you can't be neutral on a on a moving train. So just because you stay silent about Canada's um, role in, in, in undercutting uh, democracy in Venezuela, it doesn't stop the Canadian government from uh, undercutting Venezuela, uh, democracy in Venezuela. So so labor unions um, basically leave the foreign policy realm to to the hands of the the corporations and to the to the Canadian government. Um, that's I say the main criticism of, of labor unions policy today. But but in the cold in the two decades after maybe 25, 30 years after World War II, um, they were in many cases very staunch, aggressive supporters of uh, of, uh, of of U.S. Uh, slash Canadian um, uh, imperialism. You talk about left-wing institutions and uh, left-wing intellectuals and uh, how they have become uh, uh, creators and, and uh, for that matter, amplifiers of the, the, the official story from Ottawa. You want to uh, uh, amplify that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I have a section that deals with uh, Linda McQuaig and others, um, distortion of Lester Pearson's uh, foreign policy and there was sort of echoing of the myth of Pearson as this this peacekeeper trying to uh, you know bring uh, development to the world and stuff like that uh, when the the as I detailed in a, in a previous book Lester Pearson's peacekeeping the truth may hurt the the just abundance of, of evidence suggesting that it's completely absurd to 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 uh, frame uh, Pearson as being a, uh, um, a sort of uh, internationalist, uh, anti-imperialist, like they try to uh, try to frame uh, him, uh, and that's you know part of the mythology. That's an, the Pierce the, the Pearson myth is, a, is an important part of Canadian liberal foreign policy mythology, um, and I also deal with uh, Stephen Lewis, uh, who's obviously a more high-profile uh, figure than than Linda McQuaig. Um, this is somebody who's considered the big uh, uh, defender of Africa in Canada. And, and basically, in the section on Stephen Lewis, I show how uh, the only criticism of Canada's role in Africa that I see that Stephen Lewis puts forward is that we don't do enough. Right? There's not enough Canadian aid in Africa. Nothing about the you know, billions of dollars being extracted from the continent by Canadian mining companies annually. Uh, nothing about the whole history of Canadians' role in in the conquering of the continent in the 1800s and in in um, Canadians who were governors of different British colonial um, uh, colonies in uh, Kenya, Ghana, northern Nigeria. Uh, nothing about Canada's role in 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 supporting the European um, NATO powers in the 1950s uh, while they were suppressing the the anti-colonial movement and then talking about massive Canadian military uh, aid to the European colonial powers uh, as they suppressed um, struggles against uh, their rule in Algeria, Congo, Kenya, etc. Um, so so it's, it's, a, it's a whole um, uh, criticism of, uh, in the case of Stephen Lewis, and this generalizes uh, to, to the official left-wing uh, foreign policy, uh, mainstream left-wing foreign policy discussion, is that there's there's the you, you can't survive as a columnist in the Toronto Star or uh, someone speaking on CBC if you say that the world needs less Canada, 
that's just outside of bounds. Even if the facts actually um, um, suggest that's that's probably the case. Um, so 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 I think that the the major left wing uh, foreign policy commentators are are um, they concede a great deal to the official official narrative of Canadian foreign policy, in large part because uh, for a series of structural reasons that that make it very difficult to survive um, by articulating um, um, more uh, substantive uh, criticisms of of, uh, of Canadian foreign policy. One of the uh, one of the things that comes through quite clearly in the book and and in your discussion of left wing uh, institutions and intellectuals is their promotion of the uh, the persistent Canadian myth that uh, our our peacekeeping uh, efforts abroad uh, have been uh, benevolent and progressive and helpful and welcomed. Your 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 reference to to Mr. Lewis. Um, was he not part of uh, efforts to sanitize the whole uh, Rwandan uh, uh, episode, the, uh, the the mass killings, the uh, turning of Romeo Dallaire into a Latter-day Saint? Yeah, I mean, I have this, the book has a section dealing with Romeo Dallaire and how Romeo Dallaire has been upheld as this great benevolent figure by a whole swath of, of left left-wing um, media institutions, commentators, um, and they they have, uh, uh, or underpinning this mythology of Romeo Dallaire is a um, much more complicated um, um, uh, human rights catastrophe in, in Rwanda in the early 1990s. What's commonly described as the Rwandan genocide is, is is a totally simplistic, um, one-sided account of a uh, complex uh, tragedy, and and um, Romeo Dallaire very much underpins uh, this this uh, simplistic account. And Stephen Lewis specifically, um, m- most people, it's uh, most of the commentators I, I referred to. It's it's a it's a much more uh, ignorant um, uh, uh, upholding of Romeo Dallaire. But Stephen Lewis uh, played this important role on this um, this uh, uh, international committee that actually wrote the um, the African Union or the predecessor, the Organization of African uh, or, Organization of African Unity, I believe, um, uh, that actually wrote their um, statement, 300-word uh, uh, um, position paper, if you like, on what happened in Rwanda in, in 1994. It was actually Stephen Lewis's um, close friend um, who wrote that, at, and with Stephen Lewis being the one who instigated it. So it was actually the the official policy about what happened in Rwanda. Uh, Put out by the uh, the predecessors of the African uh, Union was written by uh, a guy sitting in Toronto, and he says that very openly. But but, but it's a, a total distortion of of what happened in in Rwanda, and it's it's there's a whole background to that um, that distortion that's a little bit complicated to get into all the details. But it, a lot of it is unraveling. Uh, it's even starting to unravel on the plate pages of the Global Mail, where of course it was Paul Kagame's forces that shot down the plane that uh, led to the 
mass killings in in uh, in the spring of uh, 1994. Um, it uh, there's the background to the fact that it was a foreign invasion from from Uganda in 1990. That's the background to uh, to um, all the killing that transpires over the next four years, and even for that matter, a lot of the killing that transpires in the Congo uh, over subsequent uh, decades. Um, uh, all of that's wiped out from our understanding of, of uh, what happened in Rwanda in 1994. And you have this um, Romeo Dallaire's the savior uh, story when, in fact, he had objectively aligned with the, the aggressors, in the case of the being Uganda, uh, Rwandan Patriotic Front uh, forces that had invaded uh, Rwanda from from. Uh, from uh, from Uganda in 1990, um, and even his his uh, his his boss on the UN mission, uh, Jacques Roger Boubou, who is the uh, the uh, uh, foreign, former foreign minister of Cameroon, um, uh, he actually wrote a whole book called Le, called Le Patron de Dallaire Parle, so the boss of Dallaire speaks, which talks about how Dallaire had, he was in charge of the, Dallaire was in charge of the military side of the mission and Jacques-Roger Boubou was in, in charge of the entire mission, the political side. Um, and he, he, uh, he details how Romeo Dallaire had, had sided with the RPF, um, uh, totally contrary to UN rules. Um, and, uh, but, but this, this sort of the complicated history of what happened in Rwanda and Uganda and the Congo is, is almost entirely, um, wiped out and what you have as just this, you know, great Canadian savior. And, um, and it's, t it's, it's, it's this liberal nationalist, um, ideology, uh, mythology really of, of, uh, benevolent Canada taken to this, this incredible extreme where I argue in the book, and, and I, I don't want to overstate the case, but I think there, there's a, a truth to this, that the whole conception of what, what happened in Rwanda in 1994, um, has been distorted by liberal nationalist Canadians, um, who want to uphold this idea of benevolent Canada. And, and you can just sort of, you know, say, okay, well, there's a distortion of a historical incident, uh, you know, sort of who cares. But in this case, the, the distortion of this historical incident has, has been the, the main way in which Paul Kagame, the brutal dictator in, in Rwanda, has, has, um, has maintained his power. Uh, his maintenance control over Rwanda, but also it's, it was the basis justifying his invasions of the Congo, which has led to literally millions and millions of people dead. Now, I don't want, again, I don't want to overstate the role of Canadian liberal nationalists in this. Um, obviously, it's Kagame's ties to Washington and to 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 London that are you know more important than liberal nationalist uh, uh, mythology. But there but there is a is a a real um, element of of liberal nationalist mythology. And and the, what brought this to my attention was this review of a couple books uh, about Rwanda in the, in monthly review by a by a former, um, by a Canadian uh, union um, researcher, uh, considered fairly left-wing, where he goes out of his way to to mythologize, to, to talk about Romeo Dallaire as this great individual and talk about Stephen Lewis um, as these great individuals with regards to Rwanda. And again, this is, to, this is in a, a review of two books about Rwanda in a Marxist American publication, and there's these liberal nationalist Canadian tropes 
uh, being being presented. Um, and I think it's just one example, which I detail in the book, of how Romeo Dallaire has become this symbol of, of benevolent Canada. And if you look at Romeo Dallaire's record, um, just a it, there's, there's, I mean, this is somebody who has, you know, supported uh, the the intervention in Haiti in 2004, the coup in Haiti in 2004, who supports ballistic missile defense, who supports um, <clears throat> attacks against Iran, uh, who supports increasing Canadian military spending. This is somebody who it makes no sense whatsoever that that progressive Canadians would consider the Romeo Dallaire some sort of um, f- figure to to uphold. But over and over and over again, they do. Um, and it's tied into this idea that we, we are, you know, this benevolent international force and Romeo Dallaire sort of personifies uh, that. That brings us to um, uh, an overarching theme of the book. We're basically captives of our own ignorance. And so you've proposed a, a partial solution to that uh, that you call the Canadian Foreign Policy Institute. You want to talk about that for a bit? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the um, well, one thing I want to just say before getting into that, the the this book, my most recent book, is is sort of a <clears throat> part two of my previous book, which was called a propaganda system: how Canada's government, corporations, media, and academia uh, sell war and exploitation. And, and as I mentioned, the start of left right, the that previous book answers 90 percent of the question of why we're so confused about Canada's role in the world. So they do, and it looks at the dominant media, the military, academic institutions, you know, funded by corporations, funded by the military and how they have distorted the, the foreign policy discussion. This book is really just 10 percent. Uh, uh, left over, which is how the left has not put up um, a challenge to the dominant, um, the dominant sort of propaganda uh, institutions of Canadian foreign policy. So, so that's one thing I want to say, which you you sort of alluded to in, in your in your in your previous comment. Um, now, in terms of the how do we how do we counteract the both the dominant uh, foreign policy propaganda institutions, the media, you know, the military is the biggest uh, public relations entity in this country. You know, has it has hundreds and hundreds of full time employees trying to uh, convince us that they're doing good stuff uh, or convince us of their perspective of the world. Um, so how do we combat that? Now, I think that the, the main way we combat it is through the, the, um, the activism, um, the solidarity activism, the anti-war activism um, that is taking place by magnifying, amplifying what's already going on. It's, there's you know, peace groups in most cities in the country. Many of them are, are largely dormant. Um, some of them are a bit more active than others. It's about you know making those groups uh, more active. Um, there have been times in Canadian history where there have been uh, there has been a lot of activism on some of these issues. Um, uh, the most probably successful example was in the lead up to the 2003 war um, on Iraq, where the anti-war movements were able to at least have Canada not officially join 
the George Bush administration's coalition of the willing um, that invaded Iraq. Uh, Canada did still support the war in different ways. But but the biggest, most important thing um, we're able to stop. Um, so there are instances where the anti-war movements or, or the, you know, the, the mining solidarity movements, which have had some successes, um, uh, you know, fighting against what Canadian mining companies are doing in Guatemala or, or elsewhere and, and trying to bring in restrictions restrictions on Canadian government support for those mining companies. So th there is that, that activism exists. So the main thing that needs to happen is to amplify that activism. The, one of our problems is it's, it's not um, all the, the anti-war movements of the 60s against Vietnam, the Central America Solidarity, South Africa, uh, you know, even Palestine. For the most part, it hasn't, it, it's very difficult to institutionalize it. Um, it's had an impact on the political culture. There has been this, this um, effect on political culture by all this activism. I would argue that, that we actually are more internationalists today and less racist than, than we were uh, 50, 100 years ago. Uh, and we have sort of, those movements have been able to constrain how the Canadian military fights. So they're still brutal, but they're not as brutal as they were during the Korean War, for instance. So, so that activism and the activism sort of has been institutionalized in a certain way in a, some in some left wing media, um, but 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 it's very difficult to sustain the organizations. Now, what I'm proposing in the Canadian Foreign Policy Institute at, at the initial phase, and people can go check it out uh, online today at foreignpolicy.ca. Uh, um, initial phase is just um, an effort to to uh, bring together critical information about Canadian foreign policy. So all the best articles, uh, podcasts, whatnot, uh, dealing with Canadian foreign policy uh, critical from a critical perspective. There's a list of the best books on Canadian foreign policies, a couple dozen books listed on the website of dealing with different elements of Canadian foreign policy. Um, so an initial phase is just basically a sort of repository of uh, critical information about Canadian foreign policy. Now, with time, um, and if there's resources that are that that are that are found and, and developed, um, the you know the sky's the limit. Um, um, but but there there's um, there's a need to to uh, or there's a potential for you know being doing some elements of what a, a, a traditional a think tank does of producing reports with the intention of trying to have those reports picked up by the dominant media. There's a possibility of setting up chapters in different cities across the country. Um, there's a there's a you know a, a speakers bureau a speakers bureau of different individuals that one of the things that I'm working on uh, setting up uh, different individuals who are you know sort of experts uh, if you like on Canada um, Canada Saudi relations or the the people who are experts from a critical perspective on Canada's role in Haiti um, and having offering those uh, individuals both to uh, to media and to to activist groups looking for um, you know a speaker to 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 deal with um, um, whatever issue um, so 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 there's many facets to to what the Institute um, uh, could be initially it's just a repository of, of critical information came foreign policy and over the over the years hopefully it will be um, uh, an entity that can provide um, uh, a platform to many of the different activist groups um, taking on specific elements of Canadian foreign policy and also have some sort of uh, help in sort of consciousness raising in terms of um, uh, people seeing 
Canadian foreign policy from a some from a sort of a, a, a multi-faceted uh, perspective that there is a connection between Canada's uh, w- warmongering abroad and uh, and you know Canadian mining companies being being powerful players. Um, there's a connection between uh, Canada overthrowing uh, uh, or trying to overthrow an elected government and um, um, you know uh, Canadian companies. Um, uh, being major uh, international uh, invest- investors, um, so the part of the objective of the of the Foreign Policy Institute is to is to um, uh, amplify the work that the different activist groups are doing, but also to provide, I think, a, a bit, maybe a bit bit bigger picture um, uh, of of Canadian uh, foreign policy. It sounds all very ambitious. I think we'll leave it there. Uh, <clears throat> except uh, we're going to repeat once again that the the, uh, the web address is foreignpolicy.ca and uh, you're uh, you're going to be soon on tour throughout the month of October and uh, the details I gather can be found on your website eveengler.com am I right? Yep, all the events um, are on at eveengler.com, and uh, I invite people to uh, to come out and uh, and to uh, spread the word. Thanks a lot. Thank you. That was Montreal-based author and activist Eve Engler speaking with community videographer, citizen journalist, and global research TV associate Paul Graham about his recently released book, Left Right: Marching to the Beat of Imperial Canada. Eve Engler's 2018 book tour is taking him to cities across Canada. His first stop is Montreal on Friday, October 5th at 6 p.m. at Salle de Révolution, 3720 Avenue du Parc. On Wednesday, October 10th, he will be in Ottawa at the University of Ottawa at 2.30 p.m. in room 429 of the Simard building and later at 7 p.m. at 251 Bank Street on the second floor. On Wednesday, October 17th, Eve Engler will be in Winnipeg. He speaks at Menno Simons College at the University of Winnipeg at 520 Portage Avenue at 2.30 p.m. Then at 7 p.m. he speaks at Université de Saint-Boniface, 200 Avenue de la Cathédrale, in room 2322. Thursday, October 18th, Eve Engler will be in Regina, Saskatchewan at 5 p.m. in the Knox Met United Church at 2340 Victoria Avenue in room 105. Saturday, October 20th at 1 p.m., Eve will be in Prince Albert, Saskatchewan at the Man Art Gallery. Sunday, October 21st, Eve Engler will be in Saskatoon at the Turning the Tide bookstore at 615 Main Street. Monday, October 22nd at 7 p.m., he will be in Edmonton, Alberta at the University of Alberta Education Centre South in room 158. Tuesday, October 23rd at 7 p.m., he's in Calgary at the Community Wise Resource Centre, or the old Y building, at 223 12th Avenue Southwest. Then on Wednesday, October 24th at 7 p.m., he will be in Calgary at the Mount Royal University Jenkins Theatre to participate in a debate on Canada's Israel policy. Further speaking dates are planned for Nelson, B.C. on the 25th, Kelowna, B.C. on the 26th, Vancouver on the 27th and the 30th, Victoria, on November 1st and 2nd, Courtney, B.C. on Monday, November 5th, and Nanaimo, B.C. on Tuesday, November 6th. Updates can be found on Eve Engler's website at eveengler.com. That's Y-V-E-S-E-N-G-L-E-R dot C-O-M. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. 
You can listen to our programs every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. You can also download each episode from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. Many thanks to this week's special guest interviewer, Paul Graham. I'm series host, creator, and producer, Michael Welch. Join us again next week.